0: This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers.
1: Just wanted to thank Billy Bragg for 35-plus years of great music. It's incredible. He's going to be in conversation tonight with David Weigel, political reporter for The Washington Post. Also, the author of a great book that came out last year called The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Progressive Rock, Prague Rock. Please help me welcome Billy Bragg and David Weigel.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. How do we follow that, Dave?
0: Thanks a lot. Well,
2: that's going to be tough.
0: I have read the book. I'll start with the question that would work if I hadn't, uh, which yeah. is why did Why did you write the book? What What made you want to sit down and do this?
2: Well, wow. writing songs only gets you so far, and uh, if you want to sort of insert yourself into the zeitgeist, I suppose you need to do a little bit more than just come up with some new tunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, there was a time I could. Uh, insert myself into the zeitgeist by writing songs but that was probably 25 years ago. Now I need to do something a little bit more heavyweight. So um, I, uh, my, my publishers asked me if I'd be interested in contributing to this series of polemical uh, uh, short books they're doing. Um, and I just, I just given uh, I' just given a talk at the Bank of England. In London, about Where you're uh, very popular. I am.
0: <laughs> I am. They distribute they distribute your CDs with a new account.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they were they were inviting people in to uh, talk, you know, outside of their normal experience to the staff, really to the staff. So I, t- I talked to about um, accountability, the 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 problems that we have in uh, <clears throat> how we uh, do. Are you familiar with quantitative easing, David?
0: Actually, unfortunately, all are now. <laughs> yes, were, I'm yeah. familiar with it,
2: yeah. They were a progressive <laughs> ban from Somerset. In the, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, how, how that yeah. works in my country is that the, the government just says the Bank of England, give the money away, it doesn't yeah. say where it should go. Mm-hmm. and The banks have just kept it. Uh, uh, to to show up their bottom line. So I was making the case that there should be more accountability around that. And uh, so when I was asked if I was interested in writing one of these uh, little books, I thought that uh, this would be a good subject to to crack it on. And also, there's only so many words that rhyme with accountability.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so... so...
2: Unless you're in a prog rock band, of course, then obviously... (laughs) They shouldn't have told me that, Dave. They really shouldn't have told me that.
0: (laughs) So... The accountability section, I think we'll we'll get to it. It's it's the most I think the one with the most prescriptions in the book. Uh, the question I had while reading it, though, is when did you first realize that there might be a problem with uh, the freedom people were get were getting because yeah. of the new infrastructure of the internet and the new of the new structure of the media?
2: It was quite early on, uh, uh, really around the time of the globalized anti-globalization uh, movement um, in the late nineties. That kind of helped me understand that neoliberalism, the idea that the markets uh, have the answers to all of society's problems if left to their own devices, was a uh, a complete um, rejection of, of accountability. And that once you kind of spot where accountability is missing, you realise that's a hole in a lot of donuts there. And so consequently, I've, I've been trying to tune in to those places where there isn't enough accountability, and I think for the purposes of the book, I'm trying to refer both to the, the kind of uh, the way that we deal with neoliberalism, with authoritarianism, with algorithms, but also on a, on a, on a much more personal level. I'm trying to provide um, a framework in which to address issues around uh, our discourse on social media, where there's not enough accountability there, both... Between individual uh, uh, conversations, but also as a whole on the on the whole setup.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I'm thinking of how I encountered your work originally. I was getting familiar with you when the Labour Party had just one election, in uh, 1997. It was going to win another in 2001. What what was your Journey and discovering how deeply new, neoliberal thinking had gotten into the into the Labour Party, which you you remember from before. Uh, that, I, yeah.
2: I, yeah, well, I was a member in the eighties, uh, not so much in in the nineteen nineties. Yeah. But um, it was unfortunate, really, that uh, the Blair government didn't didn't reverse the the Margaret Thatcher's uh, notions of neoliberalism. But the thing really came home to me when I was doing a live TV program for a. a a lunchtime uh, discussion program on the BBC. Uh, and I was waiting to go on and say a few words or maybe play a song. I don't remember. But there was a conservative minister being interviewed live in front of me. And <clears throat> the uh, presenter asked this guy if there would be a the possibility of raising what we call children's allowance, which is the amount of money that we give to families who have children. And he said, we'll have to see what the bond markets think about that. And I thought to myself, I don't remember voting for no bond markets, <laughs> you know. And I started to think to my, you know, started to think that there's a a sleight of hand here mm-hmm. going on for those uh, those uh, who believe in the, the neoliberal dogma that the market has the answer to all our problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. consequently, uh, with the rise of Donald Trump, with Brexit, um, the whole uh, notion of accountability seems to have gone out the window.
0: And and you. Characterized it in the book is that the, the, there is no alternative mode of thinking that thatcher coins this phrase and then labor adopts it tina tina Tina. there <laughs> much, is
2: no alternative
0: much cuddlier uh, acronym than it probably deserves yeah yeah, yeah.
2: much much cuddlier but thatcher <laughs> thatcher was the first person to uh to coin that phrase yeah with regard to a uh, free market capitalism but blair unfortunately came in and and kind of ran that through, not just through our society, but through our labor movement as well, through the Labor Party as well, took away the, the fundamental founding principles of the party um, and uh, replaced them with much more market-oriented ideas, and we're living with the results of that still.
0: And how much would you pin the problems, on um, those decisions on labor abandoning, its principles, how much on what was unleashed by the internet, the lack of accountability. I mean, I, they, they work together, but... They do. I, the Labour goal, I thought Blair's goal, is just to keep it going forever and make the, the Labour Party the majority of government by continuing to give up on some that kind of the policies. Yeah,
2: that was his and Gordon Brown, the, mm-hmm. the Chancellor's, idea, that they would um, they would free the market and, and the success of that would... Uh, well, what you Americans refer to as trickle-down. It was kind of like a fancy notion of trickle-down. But we now know that that's uh, uh, a false ideology that hasn't worked and we're left in a situation where we've yet to rectify the problems that this has caused. And I think very much uh, in my country, uh, Brexit is a manifestation of anger from people that have been left by neoliberalism with no genuine sense of agency about their lives. And this lack of agency has led them to start uh, lashing out at, uh, at people in, in in our country, the, the obvious uh, victim is the European Union, mm-hmm. uh, but also it's about immigrants. Uh, it's about those people who are having to rely on the state to provide for them, anybody except the people who voted for neoliberalism in the first place. Mm-hmm.
0: So why do you think there's been such resistance to instituting accountability or a fairness doctrine? You write in the, write in the book about the fairness doctrine that exists in the United States, and <clears throat> yeah. you write about why it was scrapped. Uh, why, why, starting with the U.K., why has there not been more of an effort to restrict that? Because I, I like our First Amendment yeah. uh, for a lot of reasons, but yeah. it is a tool that other countries that don't have, and there have been clampdowns on right-wing speech and and organizing other countries for that reason.
2: Well, I mean, the BBC and its uh, and its charter mm-hmm. has to uh, has to provide balance. Mm-hmm. But then that that involves a situation where you have you know ninety percent of scientists saying that climate change exists. Mm-hmm. Is it really balanced to get some crazy person on there to say they don't believe in it? Mm-hmm. Is that really is that really Balance, or are you bringing an extreme view into uh, a situation which uh, which there's a, a, a very, very broad, rational consensus about? So there have been complaints with regard to the way the BBC has addressed both issues like climate change, mm-hmm. particularly Brexit today. I was being interviewed by someone from the Daily Telegraph was asking me about this. No cheers to the Daily Telegraph. I'm very surprised, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. But the, um, the, the, the fundamental... Aspect of it is, I think, is that um, social media has opened up the ability of people to find whatever truth they want to find. The fact that there are enough people believing that the Earth is flat to fill a cruise ship to sail around the Caribbean using GPS on three parts of the globe to work out where their position is, doesn't go there—it um, just goes to show you how far away from the uh, the rational worldview we've come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we do to counter that, I think, is we have to draw a line in the sand. And that line, I believe that line is the line of accountability. We have to make these people accountable for for the views that they are holding, not just allow them to, to say whatever they think and to say that's their truth. We have to find a way to to make them accountable. And I would argue this is not a left or right-wing argument either. I mean, I know I'm talking a lot about neoliberalism, but this is a this is an argument that works both ways, I think. You know, that greater accountability ultimately uh, serves us all because it serves fact, it serves truth, it serves reality.
0: The worry about accountability, the fairness doctrine, and maybe this is a worry that we've learned because we're just what we're used to, is the more you say, here's what you can't have, the more people want to speak outside of it. Uh, I mean, the discussion over the last week they're probably the same discussion last week about uh whether uh, people who are being criticized for their jokes and stand-up specials they're going to become more popular there's going to be a greater audience for that uh so what is what is your response to if you have more accountability you're just going to lead to more black market popular opinion
2: well i think you know people have to be accountable for what they say stand-up comedians have to be accountable for what they say you know if they if they're not that's that's not liberty that's license you know that's that's not really um, the, the the kind of standards that we want to set. Yeah, you've got a right to offend people. Yeah, you've got a right to to speak your truth, but you don't have a right to be abusive. And I think that's where 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 is that line? I think that line is where things become personal. Mm-hmm. That's line. That line is where things be, you know where 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 um, a comment shifts into uh, into bullying. And it's a hard line, and there's no—I mean, there's no hard and fast lines on it because I think accountability works on a number of different levels. You know, you, you've—you have uh, the personal accountability that we might bring to bear in in social media when we're trying to hold someone to account for what they're saying. You've got what you might call proprietor accountability, where. Uh, saturday night live says Mm. when we don't want this person on our show we're not going to employ this person that person can still is it gillis willis
0: uh i've already forgotten his name which is a good sign for him yeah yeah,
2: good and uh (laughs) um you know it's uh that's their right it's not censorship just because the new york post doesn't print everything you say that doesn't mean you're being censored Mm -hmm. you know that's that's a different thing but then also there's a legal side to it where how far does freedom of speech go Earlier this year in the UK, a man was jailed for daubing on the front door of a uh, of a black family in the UK the words "No Blacks Here." I don't think anybody in this room would believe that constitutes an infringement of his freedom of speech. That's unacceptable, and there are laws against that sort of thing. And he rightly went to jail for it.
0: Do you th- have you seen anything in this? in new media infrastructure that's been an effective way of getting accountability i'm thinking of the idea of no platforming of somebody saying that's right you can have your neo-nazi website you can't bank here you can't be hosted by this they've effectively driven people off the internet have has is that a model you think that works
2: this kind of brings us on to the the sort of safe space model Mm -hmm. you know the idea of the safe space now From what I understand from the, I don't know if this applies to the United States of America, but certainly in the UK, the rules around safe spaces in universities are clearly geared to ensuring debate happens. They're not about stopping the debate. They're just about ensuring that everybody gets the right to speak and everybody is heard with respect. So those people who just want to come and wind people up, those people who just want to come up and... Uh, and be provocative. The Milos of this world are going to find themselves running into trouble on those rules. But as we've found out with Saturday Night Live, my house, my rules. If you're going into that space, you have to accept those debating rules. You're not being censored if you're just not allowed to to speak at that particular uh, that particular university. So I think safe space encourages free speech rather than rest- rather than restricting it.
0: So you already started to talk about this and talking about the BBC's charter, but in the UK, there are pretty strict limits on what you can say during a campaign, how much you can spend. There are strict limits in lots of countries. Here, it's unfettered. Yeah. And we have yeah. had the same sort of rise of uh, of inward-looking nationalism and populism in both countries. What does that tell you about the <laughs> the, the ability of the, all of this to break free, whatever restrictions there are?
2: Well, und- undoubtedly, the, the, <clears throat> the problems of... Uh... Political advertising in the United States of America are, are, are distorting, I think, are distorting your democracy because the amount of money it costs to run campaigns and the, the ability of, of corporations to, to, to mount campaigns against particular people, particular ideas. In the UK, um, there is no political advertising. It's not allowed. But this is uh, this restriction only applies to traditional media. It doesn't apply to Facebook. It doesn't apply to to the new media. And this is a real problem. We have a real problem on this, particularly <clears throat> around Brexit. There were a lot a lot of advertising the last couple of days of the referendum by Leave.eu who are not the official campaign. It looks like uh, they spent a, a few million pounds uh, saturating uh, people whose um, profiles they understood to be possibly uh, uh, inclined towards supporting a leave vote. If you're familiar with Cambridge Analytica, Wait, you know think, those guys. Oh yeah, yeah that
0: was the th- that was the muttering I was. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> people are familiar with that.
2: Yeah, yeah. They basically uh, they basically asked a load of questions of people, a kind of profile for them to fill in for fun. One of the questions also was, you know, how would you vote? And from that idea of how they voted, using that as a pinpoint, they were able to extrapolate from that. The profiles, the dots that join, to find those people who would vote leave and be, and they applied those to millions of websites and sent out millions of uh, 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 targeted ads. And if the even if a small percentage of those were successful, that was I think that was a perversion of our democracy. Mm. So we're you know this is where accountability comes in again because it has to be applied to Facebook the same as anybody else. How do we hold those people to account?
0: But if it's a uh- If that worked for the Leave campaign, uh, what is to stop the left? And I think the Bernie Sanders campaign this country has some ideas about this. They're trying to activate a lot of working class people who don't vote, Mm. who have dropped the rolls. What is to stop the left from using the exact same tools? Well, the thing about the
2: the, the Cambridge Analytica tool is that it didn't involve Mm -hmm. um, the consent of the people it was targeting. Mm -hmm. If providing consent is involved, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. You know, but this, was, this wasn't consensual. This was uh, snaffling information under false pretenses and, ex- and exploiting it. And I think there have to be rules against that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And when it comes to – I don't know how many questions there are in the audience. Uh, there's one.
2: Yes, ma'am. How do we deal with uh, uh, <clears throat> politicians who don't want to be held to account? We're finding this out in Britain at the moment, actually, with uh, <laughs> our Prime Minister, who uh, over the weekend described himself as the Incredible Hulk, that as he got angry, he would get more powerful, mm-hmm. and today he was uh, empty chaired by the Prime Minister of Luxembourg <laughs> uh, when he refused to do uh, to do a press conference after meeting with the European uh, the European. Top dogs. It turns out he's not the Incredible Hulk. He's the Invisible Man. <laughs> so, this is uh, which is sad because the Invisible Man isn't even a Marvel franchise. It would have been so much better. But couldn't call him Invisible Girl. That's not fair. That's, that's overstepping a, a, a line. I don't want to go there. It's a problem, madam. It's a problem. I think one of the one of the difficulties that we labour under is that most people think of democracy as synonymous with accountability. It's not. Not in your country, not in my country. I'll tell you why. Um, Where I live, we have a system of election for our parliament in the UK, which is called first past the post, which means whoever gets the most votes gets the seat. If three of us are standing and and, uh, two get 30%, I get 40%, I get the seat. And those 60% of votes for the other two candidates go in the trash. They go in the trash. It's not proportional. Where I live in West Dorset, the Conservative Party have been in control there since 1866. Where I come from, in industrial East London, the Labour Party have been in control since 1931 when the town was forged as a borough. And I know for a fact that there are Conservatives embarking where I come from because I'm related to some of them. So it's neither fair to them nor is it fair to those of us down in, in, in West Dorset. So the relationship... Between democracy and accountability is more akin to a Venn diagram than it is uh, to, to anything else. Sometimes, when there's a lot of consensus in a in a in a place, then the two of them overlap. But at the moment, when things are much more divisive, uh, then the two of them are, are starting to drift apart. And we have to—it's a challenge—to uh, to find a way in which to hold. Uh, our politicians more to account. I've never understood why there isn't more argument for a more proportional voting system here in the United States of America. Um, You know, a young country like yours, a progressive country like yours, I would have thought you'd have got that sorted out a long time ago. But proportional representation, no political advertising, maybe, I mean, I hate to say this, but a couple more political parties... Might, might ease things up a bit.
0: Uh, well, we're still figuring out the person who gets more votes wins thing. We're not quite yeah. there yet. Uh,
2: yeah, I know. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But
0: on, on the... On accountability, though, I'm, I'm putting myself in the position of one of the the very friendly Tories who might yell at you please on the show. Please do. Yep. <laughs> what are you saying? Is it if I'm if I'm an MP or if I'm, if I'm an average person, I say something that you find offensive, I'm going to jail, I'm paying a fine, I'm bankrupt. What is the punish? What is the accountability mechanism?
2: Well, as I say, it works on a number of different levels. Obviously, on on a very personal level, I can block you. Yeah. That kind of you know that's one way of dealing with it. I try not to do that. I try to deal with people or reason with people, but I understand why people do like to block people. Uh, you know, you can lose your gig, as our friend has, uh, has done at Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. uh, but there are some extreme cases where you can uh, you can go to jail. There are laws against hate crime, uh, hate speech in my country, and, and you can go, and as in, there are in most European countries, and, uh, you know, you can go to jail for those things, and I think rightly so too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really basically how... Well, I'm trying to get a handle on. Uh, are you come with a question, mate, before I go off on one, or are you go to the loo. <laughs> That's a question. I'll be bad. If well, it was, yeah. as
1: someone who hasn't read the book,
2: yeah, and for people who might be watching and whatever,
1: so is the book f- primarily focused on? the three dimensions of freedom, universal, or do you have a UK central sort of theme going?
2: Universal, that? brother. That's it's uh, it's was, on universal.
1: That's what I was assuming, but I, by the talk, it's, I just wanted to make sure people
2: realised it was... Oh, probably, you can blame me yeah. for that. Yeah. No, no okay. I think <laughs> it's, <okay. laughs> it's, it's fair enough as we are in the United States. and yeah. uh, I mean, basically, I'm, I'm arguing that um, the definition of uh, liberty as the, the right to say whatever you want to say to whoever you want to say it is not sufficient to protect... Uh, us from authoritarianism from algorithms and uh, and uh, <clears throat> from neoliberalism that fundamentally there are there are more important aspects to liberty. The, the BBC in London uh, they have a new building and uh, they've built a statue to one of their ex-employees outside George Orwell Eric Arthur Blair. And they've chosen a quote from Orwell to carve into the wall of their new building. And the quote is, if liberty means anything, it means the right to tell people what they don't want to hear. Now, I have a problem with that because people don't want to hear two plus two equals five. That quote doesn't seem to me to be a guarantee of of liberty. It seems to me to be a, 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 a guarantee of license to say whatever you want to say. So my argument really in in terms of the three dimensions is that the right to say whatever you want to say, whenever you want to say it to whoever you want to say with no comeback, that's not liberty. If it were liberty, then your president's Twitter feed would be the most, you know, the, the most greatest expression of freedom anyone's ever known. Clearly... Clearly, that's not the case. What also needs to be present is equality. Equality, not just in the right for everybody to express their view, but the right for them to be heard with respect, for their voice to be heard with respect and you to respond to them. And the the crucial aspect of that is that it's reciprocal. It's something that you have a duty in a free society to do. So on one hand... Liberty empowers you to express your view, whatever that view is. But equality requires you to reciprocate that right to others, to people you don't agree with. The famous uh, quote by Voltaire that he never actually said, I disagree with what you're saying, but I defend to the death your right to say it, is not actually a defence of free speech. It's an, It's a statement of equality. That, that you are willing to lay down your life for the right of that person to be heard and respected. Equality is the second dimension of freedom, and without without it, I would argue that liberty is nothing more than privilege. But having got equality, along with liberty, we're still in a situation where everybody has the right to say two plus two equals five. And we need to find a way to... to to address that and that's where accountability comes in that's where accountability gives freedom its teeth and the great thing about accountability is it is both empowering to you to hold others to account but it's also reciprocal in that it requires you to be accountable for your actions and accountability is not the same as responsibility responsibility belongs to you. It's an action that you take, you hold yourself responsible for the things that you have done. Accountability involves a third party having some say over your conduct and your behavior by its nature. And I think that's what that's what gives that idea of freedom the three-dimensional idea of freedom some teeth. Because instead of saying we'll wait for corporate responsibility, instead we have corporate accountability, that we the people are able to hold the powerful to account on our terms rather than on their terms. So this this three-dimensional version of freedom is an attempt to create a space in which we can have our discourse, have a social discourse, a fair discourse – but also to um, give us a a framework that allows us to to judge, if you like, if that's the right word, or, or understand the situation that we're dealing with. In the 20th century, some of us are old enough to remember ideology, did that job, whatever your ideology was. You had an ideology, you looked at an issue, you looked at it in that framework and you worked out where you sat with regard to that. That's kind of gone now. We live in a post-ideological world. But we still need a framework in this blizzard of information that we deal with every day to work out which side we're on and how how to to judge the person or the, the information that we're dealing with. And what I'm trying to do with the book is set up some parameters that can give, help to give us our bearings uh, in regard to the, the, the information that we're receiving. Mm. No, it's not the tools. I'm not sure what the tools are. I just would add, mm-hmm. I'm not offering tools. I'm just kind of trying to uh, offer a, a, a kind of uh, a framework with which to find the tools, with which to be able to hold particularly be able to hold the, the powerful to account.
1: It's
2: very good. Go thank you. Uh, I, uh, and thank you for being d- patient. Sorry, mate, I went off on one day. I do apologize. I was,
1: I was fascinated. I wanted to ask you a Brexit question. Uh, I've sort of been following it since its inception. I'm, I'm. One one thing is it's amazing that the English are as dumb as we are. But, uh, which That'd be surprised. British, mate. Not,
2: I'm taking personal. Okay. But I, I no, it's I, actually true. No, it's true. It's an English.
1: It is an English phenomenon. You're right. Yeah, uh, yeah. The North isn't quite as dumb, but uh, it's a quandary they're in now because of the No Deal nonsense. That supposedly people who voted Brexit say they, oh, they always voted No Deal. Now that's kind of the line lately. But I mean, Labour's been muddled on how to handle it. Uh, what do you think? Of labor should do going forward uh, somebody uh, some people espoused in England that Jeremy Corbyn basically just wants to destroy the Tory party and that he's he's allowing them to kind of destroy themselves so part of his approach he's taking pretty much lets this happen but there's also a chance that uh, Great Britain will break up with Scotland and Ireland breaking off from being part of the union so what is your, what's your thoughts of those things? If you have any,
2: well, you know, <clears throat> we don't play as Great Britain in the World Cup. That's never us. It's sort of like you know, um, the, the, it is true. It is true that Brexit could just dis- destroy the Conservative Party, but it could also destroy the Labour Party as well. It's incredibly toxic. It's incredibly toxic. But with regard to Labour's position, there was a strange development at the weekend, <clears throat> in that the Liberal Democrat Party, who are our third party, they usually poll about ten to fifteen percent in elections, they have they are strongly identifying with the remain position. They decided at their conference of the weekend that if they win the next election, they will simply abandon Brexit without a referendum. Just call it off. They can do that technically by revoking something called Article 50, which was the thing we used to set the whole thing in motion. Their, their policy now is to revoke Article 50, which in some ways is kind of an extreme position because it says to the to the... 52% who voted leave, we don't really care what you think. We're not doing this. So we've got the, the the Liberal Democrats on one extreme. We've got the Tories on the other extreme with no deal because that's what they're, they're going to have to really go for that because if they don't go for no deal, our populist insurgent party called the Brexit party will, will stand against them if they're not offering no deal. So the Labour Party, who are offering another referendum... With remain on the ballot, so if you wish to remain, you'll have an opportunity to vote that. Obviously, there has to be uh, a uh, a leave uh, a leave option for for those, and they're going to negotiate another deal. So, with the the two other parties at the extremes, Corbyn now seems to be offering. I hate to use this word, but he's. Corbyn is now in the centrist position. I I mean, it's kinda it's kind of strange because he's he's got so much grief for basically trying to deal with the fact that like the rest of the country, the Labour Party is split between leavers and, and remainers and he has to deal with that reality. His his parliamentary party is split along the same lines. But what we need is another referendum. Um, and with Labour Party offering a referendum with Remain on the ballot, I think we're in a good position to to pick up a lot of votes there because I feel the Liberal Democrats by saying, I mean, it's I know it's strange to think, but their actual campaign slogan during the recent European elections, which is the elections for the European Parliament, their campaign slogan was bollocks to Brexit, <laughs> and now they're going to go into the to the General election, when their campaign slogan is gonna be bollocks to a second referendum, it seems to me that's neither liberal nor particularly yeah. democratic. Yeah. So but the looking glass, Alice in Wonderland world of Brexit, a- anything could happen, mate. Anything could happen.
1: Well, and we with this, the last thing I heard is the EU at this point is like wanna go, good riddance. Yeah, let's so that's operating too. Let's
2: not hope that's I hope it doesn't come to that another one yeah.
1: Alla, mate. Hi. Uh, i also have a brexit related question um you mentioned that one of the reasons for brexit was that there were people who were left behind which is true but um on the other hand if brexit happens those people would still be left behind uh, their situation won't be better by an inch or most likely it would be worse which creates the next good possibility for the next right-wing populist so isn't it an endless cycle or, or infinite loop
2: kind of thing it is indeed an endless cycle, and it, it would lead it leaves them with no one external to blame. That's the problem. Then it will start. People will have to start looking at their own their own choices. But we have a we have a a problem. It's not really a problem, but we have a historical reality in the United Kingdom that other European nations don't have. Almost every country that joined the European Union did so to escape from a past in which they were uh, in some kind of trouble. Germany and France is the obvious example there. Spain and Portugal to escape from dictatorship. Um, The Irish to escape from, uh, you know, the shadow of Great Britain. The low countries to punch above their weight. Obviously, the Eastern European countries to escape from totalitarianism. But we British... We were kind of coming at it from being the kings of the world. And psychologically, I'm afraid, when someone like Boris Johnson sits down with the other 27 nations to discuss things, he has a terrible feeling that somehow he's part of somebody else's empire. And this psychological problem is is going to be the ruination of us because that world that we, we did have that, rolling no longer exists make britain great again it's not a viable position in fact if anything brexit is us admitting that we are no no longer can live up to that and that we're returning to something that we refer to at home as little england and uh, it, uh it's very sad to see this because um you know the uh our history, we have a great history as a country, and we are a great country, but we're no longer a great power, and we've we've yet to come to terms with that. So I think Brexit is as much as part of that as what you've just discussed about the people who are left behind. Thank you. Well, if, you were, well, if you come to the mic yeah, now,
0: yeah. I mean, can hear you. It's go on, son, go on. It's new. We just found yeah. it, yeah. So
3: you've you've kind of outlined in in your last few responses um, how uh, Labour and Corbyn have found themselves in this position where there's tremendous potential. There's kind of a parallel in the United States, uh, like with uh, you know, I guess a leftist kind of populist movement having real, uh, you know, the goalpost being. Uh, very the Overton
2: window has moved, hasn't yes, it?
3: Yes, exactly. Yes. So my question is: uh, Are you optimistic? How optimistic are you that this this kind of chaotic moment, uh, not just limited to the UK or the US, like uh, do you think that uh, an actual solution can be cleared, Like, there's a path forward, or I mean, how how realistic or optimistic are you
2: well i'm a socialist by definition and i think if you're a socialist you have to be an optimist if you can't see that the glass is half full you can't really you can't really go out there and believe that if the majority of people got to say things would be better you know those people who think the glass is half empty they're the people who you know get out of bed in the morning think the world is against them I'm, i've never been of that uh, state of mind, and I've been coming to the United States of America since 1984, long, long, long time ago. I would never, ever have believed that someone who declares themselves to be a democratic socialist will get anywhere near the presidency, not only on the on the debates, and seeing uh, uh, people like um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez becoming so popular. Uh, I, I am I'm am optimistic. I am optimistic, and the, and I tell you the 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 um, young generation of climate uh, campaigners, the school strikers, Greta Thunberg, uh, you know, I'm they they fill me with joy. They're a the new punk rock mate. They really are, because the thing about punk rock was it was self empowering. It was self empowering, and that's where they are. They're they're getting up there. No one's telling them to get up there. They're doing it of their own accord. So yeah, I am. I am optimistic, and that I think that is the um, <clears throat> the paradox of it all. Is it takes someone like Trump or something like Brexit to get people to engage properly, and so consequently, I, I you know, I, I have to tell you, I have to act. I have to curb my cynicism. I have to act really hard to do that because I think for those of us who want to make the world a better place, uh, our true enemy is not capitalism or conservatism; it's cynicism. Mm-hmm. And by that I mean our own cynicism, not Rupert Murdoch's cynicism, not the Daily Mail's cynicism, but our own cynicism. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm in a very privileged position, mate, because I go out every night and I lay down my politics, everyone claps and cheers and I feel a lot better about it, you know? <laughs> so, so... You can understand whatever, but my yeah. job—I see my job as to make because when I come off stage, my activism is charged up. But my job is to make the audience go away with their activism charged up too, to not just to me out to have it all because it's great feeling, but to make sure that they go away feeling that there's a room of people, room full of people in Arlington, Virginia, who give a shit yeah. about this stuff. That's been my job down at that Birchmere on uh, on just later this week. Thank
3: you. Radical optimism, mate. Yeah, trying to curb my cynicism every day.
2: Kick it to the curb, brother.
0: <laughs> if I could follow up quickly as the next question comes up, though, um, what do you say to the slippery slope argument? Because uh, there, when, when activism has built up in this country, people will use laws to censor them, to restrict the movement. That's already happened in some places if a college gets... Unruly, they try to restrict what the what the professors can say. Uh, I guess one argument for just total liberalism when it comes to speech is if you're not you're not for it, you're going to get crack, crack You know, you're gonna, the right will come in, crack down on it using the same ethos. Obviously, the book argues for what the principles you're defending yeah. are. So that yeah. that's also. But how much do you worry about using the same arguments to say well, here it's time it's time to get these radical uh, anti meat people out of the public sphere because they're hurting our industries.
2: I think I think you have to you know you have to take on those challenges. You have to face these people down. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we we do all now have a platform. You know, we are able to circumnavigate the uh, the um, the old mainstream media. I mean, you know, the reason uh, music no longer has a vanguard role in in, in uh, popular culture uh, is because when I was 19 and, and I wanted people in Washington DC to hear what I had to say I only had one medium available to me I had to learn to play guitar, write songs come and do gigs now if you're 19 and you've got some ideas you know you can do a number of different things you can make a film on your phone and edit it if you want to so music no longer has that that kind of uh, vanguard role but there is something that people still want and that is the communion of coming together uh, to have a, a, an experience the sort of solidarity of of song if you like you know it doesn't have to be political either it can be you know any kind of concert you get that feeling that everybody's there for a single purpose and politics offers you that politics offers you the opportunity to march i mean you have a demonstration um on sunday we the people here in washington dc i come from a country where we don't have a single document that begins we the people you know but our constitution doesn't exist. It's not there as Boris Johnson is showing at the moment by, by driving a, a, a you know, a forklift truck right down the middle of it. And so consequently, they, uh, these ideas that travel and, uh, you know, they are empowering and I'm not, we shouldn't be afraid of them to stand up and, and, and take on those people who would, uh, who would try to shut us up.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I sounds, you've been waiting a bit. So. Yeah, ma'am. Yeah. So we'll have these last two questions right here.
1: Um, Okay, well, what I'm concerned about and I want you
2: to address is the individual accountability. Like, for example, in Brexit, people all there was a fifty-two percent vote, and then the internet went crazy the next day, people finding out what is Brexit. <laughs> so it's people are not thinking anymore because there's such a bombardment of media and social media, and and the same thing in this country, people who voted for Trump feel like they get a pass, you know, that, that, you know what I mean? They don't feel like they're responsible for anything that's happening. So people have to think about being accountable before they submit their vote. Well, I'll come at it from another angle and I would say that um, <clears throat> what your country and my country both lack are mechanisms for uh, change, the change that people want, that gives them a sense of agency over their lives, and one of the problems I had with the the candidacy of Hillary Clinton was is she was clearly not a change candidate at a time when people wanted change, where they felt that they had been let down by by uh, capitalism, and they needed a change candidate, and. Trump became that candidate because he was willing to say whatever came into his head at any time. And in many ways, Brexit could similarly be whatever you wanted it to be. It could be about sovereignty. It could be about democracy. It could be about immigration. It could be about the British Empire. So our, our need is to give ordinary citizens a feel that they have some degree of agency over their lives. How do you do that? Do you devolve power closer to them? Do you, uh, I would argue, yeah, you have to ensure that their vote counts, that their votes don't go in the bin when they don't elect, uh, you know, a, a candidate so that everybody's voice is heard. Um, a plural democracy is a healthy democracy. You know, a democracy which which ultimately relies on people making compromises is, a, you know, is a, a route to a to a... A society that's more at ease with itself, that we can get a broader sense of opinion there. A two-party system or system dominated by two parties like yours and ours doesn't necessarily give you that opportunity. So I think that's that's where the problem is. Not with the way those people voted, but the the sense of of anger that led them to make the choices that they made. That's where the problem lies for me. And that's why. Just abandoning Brexit isn't going to address those problems. We're still going to have those problems in our society. We've got to find a way to deal with them. Ideally, what I would like to do, which nobody's talking about, so it's, I have, to, I have to unfortunately address the issues as they are rather than I would like them to be, is the notion of a citizens' assembly. I don't know if you're familiar with these notions. Do you have them here in the United States at all? Basically, um, <clears throat> a couple of years yeah. ago, the Irish... Uh, decided to get to grips with the issue of abortion, the legality of abortion in their country. For a long time, the Catholic Church had a stranglehold on the debate around women's rights, and they decided to set up a citizens' assembly to address this. They took a load of people, they randomly selected them in a way that reflected the demographics of the nation in age and ethnicity and politics and religion, they sent them away to a hotel for uh, weekends, three or four or five weekends. They took evidence from experts and submissions from the general public. No politicians were involved. They sat down in small groups to discuss these things. After they'd been spoken to, every participant had to write down what they'd just been told. So everyone they understood it. The whole thing was broadcast on the internet so everyone could listen to what was going on and ensure that everyone's point of view got expressed. And at the end of it, they rec- they recommended by 65% to 35% that there should be uh, a relaxing of the, the laws on abortion to bring them in line with uh, those in the UK and the European Union. So the Irish government took that information, had a referendum on it, and it more or less came out the same. 65-35 in favour. So... What, what it, it won't work on everything, but what you need to do is find a way to, to do two things. Deliberate and f- build consensus. Now, if we could have uh, a citizens' assembly around the ar- argument of Brexit, it may be that they recommend another referendum. And if they did, that would be positive because it would come from a place of consensus. It would come from a place of deliberation. Because at the moment, the referendum is coming only from one place and that's Remain, the call for a referendum. And the latest opinion poll published at the weekend, if voters were offered a choice between no deal or Remain, it's 51 in favour of Remain, 49 in favour of no deal. You know, it's going to be another referendum is going to be as divisive as the last one. And the last one was the most divisive day in my country's history since the Second World War. One of our female MPs was murdered, murdered in the streets because of the campaign. And people were saying, we've got to do it again. And that's the only way out. So to me, a Citizens Assembly would be a much more consensual way to try and deal with that. But sadly, as I say, uh, people have talked about it. The Irish example has been given, but uh, <clears throat> I suppose uh, the the idea of another referendum to undo the first one—I suppose I can see where the logic in that is. And although I'm not a big fan of it, if one comes, I will I will do everything I can to ensure that we get a Remain vote. But there, there are it's a it, the polarization in my country is is shocking. It's not only that the debate is polarized, but during the uh, European elections, the recent European elections, everybody either voted for the no-dealers or the remainers. Even the voters are totally polarized. The parties like Labour that were trying to talk about a middle way, they got slaughtered. This is very dangerous times, very dangerous times. Uh,
1: Thank you very much. You mentioned in your discussion that there has to be a third party who's
2: going to decide on accountability. Who is that third party? In what sense? You mean a third political uh, party? or a-, going, uh, a third party, a third individual who's going to, when somebody performs, says something or says two and two. Well, no, I don't, I don't think, no, it wasn't so much a third party. as I say that, that accountability works on different levels. You first, on a personal level, you've got to decide when you're debating with someone who you can't see, who's online. I mean, the great thing about you and I is we can see one another and we make certain, because of our, you know, our, our basic... Fundamental humanity. We make certain, you know, we, we uh, moderate what we say because we can see one another and respect one another. When you when you're online, that's gone, and the, the problem is, you're in a you're in a private place in your bedroom or on your phone, but you're in a public forum, and people don't take on board that that those two things work differently. So first of all, you have got to be the judge of the person that you're facing uh, uh, online the second level in a, in, in a proprietorial accountability, then you've got to decide whether you want this person to say the things they're saying on your premises. If you're a landlord in a pub in England and some bloke comes in every Friday night and starts a fight, you've got every right to ban him. You've got every right to chuck him out for the benefit of the majority of the, the, uh, other, other clients because he can come in and drink he can come in and talk he can even come in and swear but he can't keep coming in and starting fights so there's that level the proprietary level but then there also has to be a legal level there has to be ultimately a. I believe there has to be uh, even in the United States under your constitution I believe that hate speech there is hate speech in your in your judicial system yeah. there has to be a line over which we can't accept uh, people speaking it's whether or not the the um, the severity of how we deal with that and what the sanctions are are effective. Is is being blocked effective, or does that does that angry person take their anger somewhere else? How do we diffuse that anger if that person won't listen to reason? We we have, you know, these these these. These barbarians are going to keep coming at us. We've got to draw a line somewhere to stand together, sharpen our spears, and try to hold a particular line. And that's what accountability is—it's that line to say that you know you are going to be held account for your held accountable for your actions. Well, that's the point. Uh, who? How do you determine that line? The well, ACLU
1: uh, has one line. Your attitude may have another line. And uh, how do you determine that line to not inhibit free speech
2: or suppress what journalists are saying? That's the real question here. Well, I think Uh, it's who makes that decision. I think society ultimately has to make that decision. It's on a case by case basis ultimately. I mean, you know, our our laws in my my country, our our constitution that doesn't exist, is based on. uh, on a bunch of knights who were trying to hold a king accountable in the 13th century. Now, they weren't left-wing radicals or anything. They were just fed up of being put in jail by by King John. So they came up with this idea that no one is above the law. Be you ever so mighty, no one is above the law. And we have struggled in my country. We had Our civil war was really a, a revolution. It was a revolution, and it was based on the idea that Absolute monarchy must somehow be held to account. The absolute monarchy of the of the Stuarts, of Charles I, of uh, James II, our constitution and our constitutional settlement from 1688, our Bill of Rights. I mean, you know, never mind you Americans. We got this sorted out. <laughs> you know, the, the, we chopped our king's head off 100 years before the French. we have been there. Our problem was we did it before... The likes of Thomas Paine, another Englishman, had come along with the idea of, of individual rights. The guys who uh, chopped off Charles I's head were doing so on on kind of, but they didn't really have any choice. You know, he, he kept he just kept on fighting. But it was a key moment. English history pivots on that moment of extreme accountability when they chop off Charles I's head. Before. Policy is made by theology and by uh, patronage and tradition, but after that moment, deliberation begins to take root. Democracy, the very first seeds of democracy, are set. Sure, it doesn't work out. The, key, the monarchy comes back. Why doesn't it work out? Because no one was planning for a republic. They were just trying to get the king to just play ball with them. You know. So when the king does come back. He has to come back on their terms. And then when his brother, James II, won't play ball again, they sort him out. They sort it out. But they they finally, you know, they they our constitution, our bill of rights is an agreement between the Crown and Parliament. It's not like your constitution that begins we the people. And that's what we that's what we have that's missing. On account of the 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 nature of our our constitutional settlement, our our attempt to deal with unaccountable power. In the 17th century, it was the monarchy. In the 21st century, it's neoliberalism. Capitalism is the, the great absolute power that we have to find a way to, to bring to heel. And that I think that is the real challenge because it not only uh, delivers the accountability that we're talking about, but it also addresses the question of agency and the sense that that you know the the way the global economy has worked it's taken it's taken power away from ordinary working people and that's why I'm really pleased to see that the United Auto workers have come out on strike for better rights, for better pay <laughs> and greater accountability in the workplace. Thank you. Thank you, mate. All right. On that note <laughs> Please help me and
1: thank Billy Bragg.
0: Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.